Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good afternoon and good evening to all of you wonderful listeners out there. This is Alex, and welcome to another installment of Undying Light. We are oof, we're knee deep, neck deep, shoulder deep. We're in there. We're in the trenches here. We are plowing through the book of Revelation, and we are doing this together. And uh, we are using this as our last... Uh, crutch, if you would, last stopping point, the last train stop uh, in the way to concluding our series on uh, eschatology. Now, you know, we can talk on this particular topic for many reasons. Um, it can go in various different directions. We could talk about how um, different types of language used in the New Testament is eschatological because it's the beginning of an end. You know, we could say that Christ himself is uh, an eschatological character because he is. He is the beginning and the end. Uh, his coming uh, established an eschatological event, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that. Um, you can even say him forgiving sin is an eschatological event because for the sheer fact that he's ending our chains, our bondage to sin by forgiving us. And so a lot of really interesting ways we could, we could have really taken this show. Um, but based upon kind of how mainstream Christianity acts and works, I felt that it was in the best interest to take it via the four views and uh, walk through those and then go through scripture and see where does scripture really point to an ending, an ending of something. And we, I think we did a fairly decent job looking at uh, the book of Gal uh, Genesis. And then we looked at, I was going to say Galatians, I don't know why, but the book of Genesis. And um, then we walked through um, some Old Testament uh, scripture. And then we obviously talked about the New Testament, Paul's writings, uh, looked at Peter and Jude for a week. And now we are. You know, this is like, I don't know, the fifth or sixth show in the book of Revelation. And today we are looking at um, 
the book or uh, the, the the scrolls opening, and so we will pick up here at uh, chapter five, verse eight, uh, eight, and then move until the end of five, and get into um, the uh, sixth chapter, and go until the eleventh verse. And so we've got quite a bit of uh, context to pick up. There's a lot happening here, and. I'm going to preference this with this, that there is probably um, a lot of twisted scripture in here. Very, 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 very heavy because we get into the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And um, and so we're going to go through these seals really quickly. And then we will get to the fifth seal um, in chapter six verses nine through 11. So we've got a ton of material. So first of all, if you haven't listened to any of the show, I would recommend that you start this particular portion and go back to the beginning because then you will understand the context in greater detail. We've kind of worked this through as a whole series. These are multiple parts uh, in conjunction to the first show. And so uh, it would be rather difficult to pick up today's show and understanding how we're kind of laying things out without going all the way back to the first show in this portion. Right? You don't have to go all the way back to the beginning of eschatology, but go back to at least uh, the first show in Revelation 1 to help provide you with better content. And so that's my recommendation. If you are picking this show up halfway new, if you're a new listener, I am so blessed to have you. But I highly stress that you go back and listen to the first episode in Revelation and then work through the series on that level because um, each kind of portion, if you would, of the uh, of this series is kind of done in multiple parts. And so we looked at the Olivet Discourse and we looked at uh, Matthew 24 and 25 and a little bit of Luke and a little bit of Mark. And those were, those all kind of worked together. And so we drew upon the passages that we had already talked about. And so they kind of built upon each other. And so if you go back and listen to it, then, you know, it's, it's hard to listen to, you know, one episode that's uh, kind of out of sync with the rest. So you, know, you can listen to this whole series in order, obviously going all the way back to the intro of eschatology back in August of 2020. And you can pick up and, and you know, work your way through it. You've got a full plate of listening then. And I would commend you to do that if you would. But uh, here we are, and we are at chapter five in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and uh, got kind of like a wee bit of a stuffy nose, it seems like, this morning for you as I sit down to record this episode. Lovely. Um, it, for those who don't know, I, I have a little recording studio in my basement. And sometimes when I come down here, it's like, um, I, I think I need a dehumidifier. I have one upstairs. I need to get it down here and hooked up. I'm probably going to do that today. So a little bit of, uh, <laughs> unnecessary information for you today. Anywho's. So I have to say, if you are a new listener, thank you. And welcome to the show. If you are a longtime listener, then thanks for coming back and tuning in for this week's show, because, you know, like I said, we're plowing through. We've got a lot of content on our table and uh, I'm not going to waste much time other than I do want to mention this, that Undying Light is a listener supported show. And so if you want to learn how to uh, support the show, there's the little 
commercial, if you would, at the beginning um, that talks about how you can support us through ACAST. I don't really utilize that platform too much. Um, it's there, but it doesn't give you direct interaction with me. But if you want to go that route, you're more than welcome to. The biggest platform that we're on that you can directly interact with me is on Patreon. And then from there, you'll get access to our Discord server and our Instagram chat and all of the extra benefits that I give you. So, for instance, as I say every week, I'm recording this live um, so that way uh, via video so I can answer questions and, and give uh, the listeners kind of a you know little um video behind the scenes what's going on with the show plus they get blooper reels things like that when i mess up on the show um and so they get that and then on top of that they get my sermon notes and any other papers they get uh, early access to any blog articles that i'm writing they get early access to all that kind of stuff Uh, and then they get just direct communication with me and others in the community so it's not obviously just me there's a, a plethora and i mean a plethora of intelligent biblical believing Christians. Uh, so this community is wonderfully supported beyond just myself for prayer questions, just good life commentary. I mean, we talk about everything. And, uh, so these people are wonderful and I think every single one of them, and we are really just one Patreon away uh, from doing our big giveaway. So our milestone is 50. We're at 49 as of the recording of this show. And once we hit 50, I'm doing a premium Bible giveaway for them just as a thank you back into the community because uh, I love to pour into these individuals. So that is that. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the text that we have at hand today, because, again, this is uh, complex and will take us a long time. I think, I think we're going to break the hour mark easily with today's show. Um, so we are in revelation and the fifth chapter we left off last week as John was kind of in, um, he was really upset. He was perplexed if you would, um, that there was nobody who could open these scrolls. Uh, this particular scroll, uh, it had seven seals on it. And so he's, he cries out that nobody can do it. And so uh, it says he weeps, that uh, weeps loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So we know that this is Christ. And again, this goes back to the first week where we can declare that Christ is the victor. And so no matter how we handle these texts, no matter how we look at it, whether we come from a dispensational perspective or um, an amillennialist or postmillennialist, whatever cup of tea you're drinking today, it is for us to say that through the book of Revelation, the central theme is this. Jesus Christ is the victor and he will come again and take us home ending the essentially the reign of sin upon this earth. So all of that will be done away with the old earth cast away. So that is kind of our central theme as if you would, as we are walking ourselves through this book. And I think it is well suited because we constantly see that over and over. Uh, we just saw that again up here in verses uh, five and six and seven, that 
Christ is the only one worthy enough to open these seals. And guess what? We're going to crack our first seal today. And so let us begin verse eight. Uh, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then he looked, and I heard around the throne the four living and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne to the lamb be the blessing and honor and glory and might forever and the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped all right so before we crack that first seal he's handed the scroll and very interesting here uh i really want to point this out and we'll get to it here um very interesting how john writes and they sang a new song and i was really kind of pondering this and it's i think it's beautiful because it very few events in human history warrant a new song and i you know new in air quotes, right? Um, we get new music every day, you know, you know, in today's society, music's published on the regular, you know, there's like new, new tunes Tuesday or something. And then new music Fridays. I mean, it's like every day there's new stuff coming out. People want to get heard. People want their, you know, their music to be in the top charts, whatever, but we're not talking about, music in the secular level. We're not even talking about Christian music. We're talking about worshiping in the throne room music, music that can music that is only worthy enough to be sung in the worship or in, in, in worship in the throne room. And so last week we heard them worshiping and this was the song they sang worthy are you our Lord and God to receive glory and honor for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. Um, they go on and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who is and was and is to come. So we have these, you know, we have them casting their crowns, saying these things, praising God worshiping God in this manner. And so these are the songs, right? That never end. This is constantly being worshiped. You know, Christ and God are being worshiped in this sense. And so, it's interesting how John hangs here kind of on, on verse nine, but we're going to get to that. So, all right, let us continue looking at this text and we'll get to nine, but uh, we're going to look at eight here. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And by its reaction, the heavenly court affirms 
that the glorified Lord Jesus is worthy to be installed into his new capacity. Um, we know that he is there as, you know, ruler, if you would. He's there to be glorified. He is sitting on the throne. Uh, but it's interesting how these scenes are kind of painted for us that if you would, these don't exist within time. Like we would think of time, like this didn't happen, you know, in, in 70 AD and then it doesn't happen anymore. We know that when John visits, um, this scene, this throne room scene, he's taken up in the spirit. And we know that we can, we could probably articulate as we've done through the attribute series that God exists outside of our understanding of time, space, things like that. And so it, it's hard for us to try to picture this one instance, if you would, where Christ basically is confirmed as being Lord and Savior. And not only that, but being worthy to handle these scrolls, to handle the scroll and handle the breaking of the seals. And so we kind of have this little bit of an event here where they fall down and they these elders... And the living creatures are affirming that Christ is the only worthy one. And so I would venture to say that, you know, it's hard for us to kind of wrap ourselves mentally around the time span in this moment. We know, again, that John is in this moment and and that he's witnessing these things. Now, we know that they are always worshiping. And but we know that in this point now they're transitioning a little bit because they're they're going to witness these things to come. And so we talked a little bit about kind of like the time framing early in the earlier episodes and how, you know, some of these events have are always going on in heaven. And then some of these events will be events to come. And so we we essentially are seeing this point where they fall down and they affirm that Christ is worthy enough to, to be worshiped. And, and it's not, again, it's not about only being able to break the scroll. It's not about, um, anything of that nature. Um, it's simply because he is worthy of all of it, the worship, the glory. And we, we see that, painted for us here in this text that, you know, he is worthy as the lamb who's slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it's just, this is what the text is telling us that this is who Christ is. He is worthy of all these things. And so, um, I, th like I said, I think it's interesting how John kind of frames verse nine with this new song and, and I think that there is no more momentous moment than this recorded here in chapter five, to which John writes that a new song is sung. This event is uh, this event with the ascension and the enthronement of the Son of God after successfully completing his work. John has watched that Christ approached God's throne and took the scroll of the divine will. He wrote and then 
He took the scroll and they fell down. The living creatures and the four elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you've ransomed the people of God from every tribe and language, people, and nation. I, you know, I, I, I love how this kind of finishes here in verse nine, uh, because it really goes on to, to demonstrate again, some of the hypocrisy within Christian circles, um, and, and not the big mainstream ones. I'm talking like, you know, the really, the ones really on the fringe, if not even post or beyond Christianity, those who would claim Christ, but reject scripture. Because, uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago on like the, the black Hebrew Israelites and how they often misrepresent scripture and they misrepresent the context to which uh, Christ is actually portrayed as being a black person. Um, I'm not going to get into race because it's just a messy thing for, for that. But um, what we continue to have in, in their viewpoint is how linear and how restricted Christians or in their eyes would be if they would call themselves that even, uh, I think they'd just call themselves Israelites, I guess. But we go down here a couple of chapters later and we have Christ being the one who's ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So how would you reconcile that? How can you reconcile that text was stating that only if you have this particular heritage. So John was right in, in, in describing that Jesus was black. And then you take your text and warp it. And then you disregard a text like here in five, nine that states that Jesus was in fact worthy to ransom these people from every tribe, from every language and people and nation. See, this is the problem that we get into Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, that we, we singularly take out a piece of text and we twist it and warp it, if you would, to fit a narrative and it can get really messy. So this is why we have to look at things in its entirety. We have to look at the entire book of revelation and we talked, you know, really heavily about kind of the construct of it in the first episode. Again, if you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it because it helps us build out the understanding of how we're going to interpret these texts. And then we get to a piece like this and we can really say, well, yeah, this verse here really would trump extra biblical uh, views. You know, ones that would be, for instance, like um, from a black Hebrew Israelite or from any other, you know, group that wants to lay claim to something very specific, you know, that only they are saved ones. Obviously, anything cult wise that just these verses absolutely just trump that. And so this new song that John hears here in verses eight and nine um, is a song of redemption. It's a celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in the vision in chapter four, John heard the song of creation sung to God's praise. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You've created all things, as 411 states. The song is probably similar to the creation song that God spoke of to Job uh, when he says in Job 38, 7, the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. 
but with Christ's redeeming work, there is a new cause for God's praise. Interestingly here, William Hendrickson writes, they sang a new song because never before had a great and glorious deliverance been accomplished, and never before had the Lamb received this great honor. So Revelation four add, or Revelation 5 adds to the fourth chapter, therefore in the same way that Christ's redemption adds to the glory of God and creation. The new song is offered to Jesus because, having redeemed his people, he had taken the scroll, which will determine the flow of future history. And that means that Jesus is controlling history in the interest of those he has redeemed. So we have the this wonderful statement here and uh, verses 8 and 9, you know, where the elders and the living creatures fall down to worship uh, Christ. And then they go on to sing this new song. And I think it's beautiful because it really starts to signify that Christ is worthy to be worshipped. Uh, he first he's praised because he was slain. He did not die to an, from an unavoidable tragedy, but did die as a voluntary act of sacrificial love for his people. Uh, second, he's worthy because of what he achieved in death. By your death, you ransomed people for God. And it's significant that the adoration of the church in heaven centers on the redemptive act, uh, the redemptive sacrifice of, of Christ's cross. Similarly, when true Christians explain the substance of their faith, they always focus on the sacrificial death to purchase us from uh, the debt of sin. Now, we can get into the atonement conversation, whether it was, you know, uh, the atonement was in a sense of a purchase or Christ took the sins from us. Um, it get into some different types of theology on that particular piece. Just kind of something fun for you to dig into if you want to look at atonement theories and things like that. But not going to be for today's show because there's other context. So, anywho, in other words, Christ redeems his particular people from all over the world. That is the elect. Again, we get into some interesting waters if we want to get into this uh, deeper. Uh, this refer, affirms the Reformed doctrine of limited atonement or particular redemption. Uh, yes. But also, I think, and I had this conversation actually last night, and I'm going to kind of throw it out on the show today because I'm looking at my notes here, and, and I really want us to kind of think about this a little bit. I think sometimes in the Reformed camps, we can get very linear on who's saved and who's not saved. Like we, we want to be more, we want to, it's like, we want to try to take the atonement and confine it into a box and say that only if you demonstrate fruit, only if you do these things, then you are redeemed. Um, and while those are examples, they don't determine whether one is elect or not your good fruit doesn't determine whether you are saved or not because um, I actually got into a debate and I'm going to continue this thought process. I got into a debate with somebody online yesterday about Rick Warren being a uh, false teacher. I made the claim he was, and this person was very adamant about calling me a false teacher. And I'm like, all right, well, what's your proof? What were, were you, were you, you know, how are you going to label me a false teacher? And his, his evidence 
if you would. It's not really. It's more of a childish act was to say that I don't give 95% of my earnings back to the church. Well, sorry to disappoint you, buddy, but I'm the pastor of a very small congregation in the middle of Iowa. I don't have book deals. I don't have touring deals. I don't have, you know, millions of dollars rolling into my bank account that I can just give back to the church. The money that I take in terms of a income from the church pays for my food (laughs) and insurance. So I'm not over here reaping in the millions like Mr. Rick Warren is. And I said, and by your, your, you know, level of assertion, you know, you're, you would say people like Joel Osteen are good teachers because they give money back to the church in large quantities. I mean, you know, there's rumors that Joel doesn't take a salary from his church, but he makes his millions from book deals and touring and things like that. I mean, I remember to go see, and this was a long time ago, and I did not go willingly but I went to appease some family members. I went to see him. Um, I don't even want to say preach. It's more like a stand-up comedy routine for me. But anyways, I remember uh, the tickets were like $25 a person. Like seriously, to, to, to see, like, what? Now, like, I can get it if you were going to, like, a Bible conference and you're going to, you know, the money you give to a conference is to, um, help pay for the facility to help pay for the travel for the people coming it, you know, to help take care of all that kind of thing. These people that are doing these events aren't making millions of dollars by doing these events. They're doing it because they love to preach the word of God. And, you know, basically they're just getting their airfare, hotel, food, things like that expensed covered. Right. But people like Joel and Rick, and all these other, you know, big time evangelists type people, um, they're raking in ridiculous amounts of money. So this was his argument to me. And he couldn't actually provide why he had to go that route. But he felt that he needed to question my uh, surrendering, if you would, of all this money. But anywho, um, we get into this conversation and it just, it, it really bugs me when we start to confine these groups like when we start to define who is saved and who's not saved and and the reason i'm saying by your works doesn't save you because rick warren and joel and all these other big time people preach a false gospel just because they give money to the church and the church does good things with them doesn't mean anything you know i hate to say it but bill gates gives billions of dollars into various organizations, though you can argue whether or not that's actually for the good these days or not. But, um, you know, I would venture not, but that's neither here nor there. You know, these people who pour millions into organizations around the world, that's not going to save you. It doesn't matter whether it's a hundred dollars or a million. It does not constitute your salvation. And so, you know, I'm probably going to get some flack for it. I frankly don't care, but I have been one to hold to the position that just because you can demonstrate works doesn't constitute to one being saved because there are many in the church who have done good works. There are many in the church who have done these wonderful things and have really displayed their fruit and then have turned around and not been saved. 
They've walked away from their faith. They've surrendered it. And so we get into this kind of defining factor of limited atonement or particular redemption, whatever you want to call it. And we, we have to put, you know, like these restrictions. Well, God can only operate within X, Y, and Z because we have a particular piece of scripture like we do here, um, you know, in verses nine, eight, nine, more or less nine. But I, I just, I, I struggle with seeing how, I guess I don't, you have to be very careful because I don't want to, I am far from a, a universalist, but I think I want to break the box, if you would, on limited atonement. And I want us to consider the fact that limited atonement I think is right in a, in, in a particular manner, but at the same level, we have to understand that there's something greater going on because we can't restrict God from acting in any particular fashion because really here's what the text says. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It doesn't say how many, it doesn't say limited. It doesn't even say the elect. It doesn't say anything like that. It just simply states what it states. Now there's, you know, you can go to Matthew one twenty one and read that Christ comes to save his people from their sins, his people. Well, who are his people? Well, that's the elect. And then we see this language, you know, being pushed out throughout the new Testament. And I would argue to say that obviously not every single person is saved. I would say this. The call of the gospel is universal in nature, that the call of the gospel goes out to every single person, man, woman, and child. We should be preaching the gospel to every single person. That's it. That's the universal call of the gospel. Now, the working of the gospel, those that God has determined to save, that's on him. And and I would say... If you want to talk about the atonement, I would say that the work of Christ on the cross was sufficient for all of whom it was supposed to be sufficient for. And so the work of Christ on the cross covers the sins of those it was designed to cover. You can say it's limited. You can say it's, you know, whatever you want to, whatever title you want to give it. Um, But I do want to be careful in saying that, you know, Jesus died for every single person. And so that only those who are not saved are those who reject him. Well, Paul does state that those who reject Christ do so by the suppressing of the truth and the knowledge of God. He says that in Romans 1. But also we have to be careful to state, you know, when we get into these types of waters, because universalism is a dangerous doctrine. And so I would venture to say that Christ didn't die for every single person. Because we have people who reject him. And so I will go back to my previous statement and say that the death of Christ on the cross was sufficient for all of whom it was supposed to be sufficient for. And I just, I guess for me, labels really kind of limit a scope. And I don't want to say, you know, I mean, limited atonement could be could be stapled to that. I mean, if you want to give it that title, I don't care, but 
I just, I guess for me at the end of the day, I just want to really stray away from, you know, looking at a particular uh, title to something because I I find that sometimes that they can be uh, taken out of context and they can be applied poorly. And I don't want to do that with anything that I'm at. Anyways, that's a side tangent and it probably didn't make any sense in terms of rambling, but, uh, you know, I just see, I see these types of verses and they can get twisted and it can really, it can, it can bring kind of a, a hard way to understand the text. I mean, verse nine clearly states that people from every nation, every tribe, every, uh, language, have been ransomed. And so we don't know the full scope of the atonement. We don't know how many people fall into line with this. We just don't. Scripture doesn't tell us how many. There's no definite number of those who are redeemed. But anyways, John goes on verses 10 through 14, and they continue to sing praises. Um, And we get the wonderful knowledge here that God is sovereign. Again, that is another central theme to uh to the to the book of revelation um and i want to kind of read here a little bit that is how the uh, believed believed christians were to respond by adding their own amen uh, of faith to christ's sovereign rule and giving themselves over to joyful adoration fulfilling their calling as a kingdom of priests and that's what we see here um and 14 here as they, uh, they say, amen. And the elders fell down and worship. Uh, this situation is little different for Christians today. In 2000, James Montgomery Boyce, a famous Christian expositor and pastor at the 10th Presbyterian church in Philadelphia was preaching through this very section of revelation when he had realized something was wrong with his body. The doctor's ex- uh, examination revealed that Boyce was afflicted with cancer that must take his life uh, within a few short weeks. So after receiving this particular news, uh, Dr. Boyce, uh, Boise notifies his congregation and speaks to them on this particular, uh, issue that he's faced. Uh, he'd served this congregation for 32 years. Uh, the disease had rapidly spread so that Boise could not preach or speak any, uh, and only briefly. And after describing his condition and thanking them for prayers, he noted uh, they had been preaching the sovereignty of God so long that now they wanted to know whether God was sovereign over his disease. To which he replied that his illness and impending death was no accident, was not accidental, but was God's sovereign will for his life. So think about that. It's kind of interesting as we kind of conclude this little section in chapter 5 the sovereignty and goodness of God that Dr. James Montgomery Boyce could recognize that his cancer that had quickly spread had reduced him to only being able to speak briefly was comfortable enough to state that God had a very particular plan over his life. And I think that's something Christians really neglect to understand today is that the sovereignty, the, the, the whole scope of what Christ and what God is doing and the Christian, I think that's something, you know, greatly 
undermined today. But again, we talked about the sovereignty of God in depth on the attribute series. And so there's much, much more going on than, uh, than just, you know, we're going to pull out of here in the like 30 second clip, right? We did a whole episode on it and that doesn't even begin to describe how God functions, you know, from beginning to end entirely all through eternity. So a lot of great material there. I would recommend if you want, go back and listen to that episode and you'll get much more details on God's sovereignty. But I find it to be, you know, comforting for James to experience this and to see while we know that he's um, no longer with us, how he handled it comfortably. All right. So now we are going to move on into chapter six. We're going to work through uh, verses one through eight here in our next section. And then we will um, get down to the 11th verse as we conclude today's episode. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the living, one of the four living creatures say with a lot, with a voice like thunder come. And I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he had opened the sea, the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given great, given a great sword. And when I, when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hands. And I heard what seemed to be the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of Bailey of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. And we had opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the four living creatures of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword, with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Oh, goodness. Here we go. The four horsemen of the apocalypse has become this popular culture, you know, cultural metaphor. There's been movies, TV shows. Um, one, actually, interestingly enough, uh, a number of years ago now on Fox, um, Sleepy Hollow. And if you know the story of Sleepy Hollow and the Headless Horseman, um, you know, it's uh, with Ichabod Crane and all that stuff. Well, the first season was kind of really focused around that. And then the show really went off this different path and started talking about um, the the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that the Headless Horseman was a part of these four. And so then these the, the main characters had to like fight the four horsemen of the apocalypse and it was good, but it was really out there, really out there anyways. But you know, so we have that and then we had, you know, the left behind books that talk about it. Um, 
we have all of these mainstream, you know, kind of notations to it. I mean, even for instance here, 1924 Notre Dame football team under legendary coach, uh, Newt Rockney, Rockney, I mispronounced that name all day long, uh, had his backfield that was an all-star backfield, uh, linemen linemen and, and linebackers, if you know football, and they were called the Four Horsemen. And so they have different points throughout culture that like to take these verses and, and, they they make movies and they make um all of these uh tv shows books and provide these labels to people because you know we look at this text here and and it can be frightening and so anything that has you know kind of a set of four that would be frightening and destructive you know if you know football, I mean, if you have four big guys in your backfield, call them the four horsemen because they're going to be wrecking some people all day long. But we we get this cultural take on it, and it really starts to twist the text. And so we get into some 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 difficult uh, some difficult understandings. And so we have the first scene, if you would, of Christ opening the seven seals. As each seal is broken, a calamity of the sort Jesus had predicted is unleashed. And so if we want to go back uh, and, and reflect on that, then we can look back and see where Matthew 24 and 25 happens. And so we're just going to walk ourselves through these horses really quick. Um, again, I think episodes would probably be better suited, if you would, on these particular elements. I mean, again, before really wasting a ton of time, you know, trying to kind of explain the rationale behind why I'm setting the show in this fashion, because uh, the book of Revelations, 22 chapters, there's a ridiculous amount of text in here that can be, you know, broken down and we can we can scrub um, each verse, each section for for multiple shows. Uh, we can talk about all of these different viewpoints, but, you know, and each of these horsemen could have their own episode. But, you know, we're, we're trying to walk ourselves kind of at a high level overview of this, trying to provide a very I don't want to say an easy, but an understanding that we can pick up the text and just walk ourselves through it. Now, like I said, this isn't in depth. And I've said this throughout this entire series. This is not a, you know, complete the study type book and and you're done. You don't have to do anything more. I, I encourage you to go back and find other commentaries, other sources, podcasts, YouTube videos, teachings, get on and, and, and do your additional research because again, this is complex. And so as I'm going to very quickly look at these four horsemen, I wish, and maybe we will in the future, um, spend more time talking about them in greater depth because they do have a lot coming to it. So 
here we go. Um, so as I had mentioned, this is the first seal opened. Now, each of these horsemen represent a seal being broken. And so the first seal broken is the white horse. And though many attempt uh, to take this figure on this horse as Christ, it is not likely. Granted, there is another figure on a white horse named the Word of God, and he's going to appear uh, in 19, uh, chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. But within chapter 6, we have four horsemen, and each one is actually bringing havoc and chaos. Uh, moreover, Jesus has already appeared in this scene as the one breaking the seals. So he can't be <laughs> breaking the seal and then uh, and then also appearing to be this white rider on the horse. And so, again, to understand this depiction, it is not a um, connection to Christ. So we will see Christ on the white horse when the heavens shatter and he comes to send his angels to collect the elect, as we talked about in Matthew 24 and 25. All right, here's where we're going to get into some, some waters. Dispensationalists will take this as a very, as a very specific instance. They will say that the four horsemen will come. You may not necessarily see them, but they will represent specific instances that will happen at the end of times. Now, to get more in depth, and we talked about this a little bit on the premillennialist dispensational um, episode, that the four horsemen will represent certain events happening. You know, the four horsemen will be unleashed and, you know, chaos and that ensues. Well, I'm going to take a little bit different view here and say that the rider on this particular horse, the white horse, should be taken more as a symbol of mankind's insoluble hunger for power and its and and for his aggression. So what we get here in uh, chapter uh, verse two is I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he was conquering out to conquer and to uh, and conquering. And so these four horsemen, um, they're not given a very specific instance. I mean, where, where would we have, you know, who, who, who is this going to represent? Uh, who is this going to include? Uh, so we're going to take a look at this a little bit deeper here, just so that way we can have a better understanding. So before understanding the mission of this horseman, we must under, uh, must first determine his identity. Now, I did say that I don't think it's Christ, so let's look at what we have here in my notes. The three main candidates is that he is Christ going forward with his gospel into the world. Well, we can scratch that. Antichrist going forth with violence or simply various conquerors who periodically arise in history. Those who believe that Christ, uh, that the writer is Christ, point to the appearance in Revelation 19 as a rider on the white horse who leads the armies of heaven. White is the color of righteousness in both John's gospel and Revelation, and Jesus is frequently said to conquer. 
There are, however, reasons to doubt this view. Uh, the primary objection is that uh, celebrated is like that the celebrated Notre Dame football players, the four horsemen are all on the same team. Their purpose is tribulation, not salvation. Moreover, this rider wears the laurel crown of a conqueror rather than the many diadems that Jesus wears in Revelation 19. So while the color white often speaks of righteousness, it can also represent a victorious warrior, such as the Roman conquerors who rode white horses in their triumphal parades. And for many reasons, many scholars see the first rider not as Christ, but as a satanic counterfeit, the Antichrist, especially since he is said to conquer, as Revelations 11 and 13 will tell us. It is probably best, however, to see that the first rider is neither Christ nor the Antichrist, but a collection of military and governmental powers through history. And so that's why I was saying that this particular uh, horse, as all the four horsemen will be, are symbols to be unleashed upon earth at various times. Now, we could say that, you know, these scrolls have been already opened because we've had various people through history through the last just last 2000 years trying to conquer the world through their military objectives even within recent history we've had it through you know world war one and two uh, hitler was probably the most prominent in terms of trying to conquer and trying to grab up other countries uh, we have skirmishes nowadays it seems like they're not full-fledged uh, wars like World War II was, but we have countries trying to invade other local countries and trying to seize power. And so this rider is a symbol of that desire to conquer your neighbor. So it's very easy to see how this is definitely not Christ in this particular text. Breaking the second seal, we get to the next horse is bright red. This horse is the same color as a bloodthirsty dragon that will appear later in chapter 12. This rider represents the toll of violence, uh, especially that which is undertaken in its name to con uh, of conquest. And so now we have this red horseman. Um, and actually, we will see how these three are very close in comparison, the red, the black and the pale riders. Uh, they depict the ravages that accompany warfare in human history. John continues here with the red horse, which brings slaughter. When I opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse bright red. The rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, and so that people should slay one another, and that he was given a great sword. And so the bright red color of the second horse fits the theme of violent bloodshed. God, uh, John says here that the rider was given a great sword and was permitted to take peace from the earth. So while the first rider, the white one, brings military conquest, the second rider brings civil war and bloodshed within society. And so here's the other thing, too. These horsemen don't have to represent mass chaos. They don't have to represent bloodshed on a global scale. 
they can represent bloodshed within our own communities. You know, obviously we know that man has been sinful um, from the very beginning. Man has been um, killing and slaying each other since uh, Cain kills Abel. All the way back in Genesis 4. So we know that bloodshed has been around for a very long time. But what we get here is that we will see this called a ramping up, if you would, that when these seals are broken, and again, could we say that as um, as we as John is in this throne room, is it an instant in the future time frame? Does it happen, you know, anytime after that moment that John is there, or is it happening in that time frame that John is present, presently alive? If it's happening within that time frame, let's use this kind of viewpoint. If these four horsemen are unleashed, you know, give or take, you know, between the year 80 AD and 100 AD, when John is out on uh, Patmos, we could arguably say that these four horsemen have been unleashed and full-fledged to accomplish their goals going forward for the next, you know, 2,000 to 2,500 years, however long it's going to take Christ to return. And so we have mankind uh, running out to um, to conquer and to be conquered. We have um, the red horse to carry great bloodshed. And not only that, like but like I said, that the uh, bloodshed can be centralized to our own communities. We have, you know, people killing people for really no reason. Gang violence is at an all-time high. We have cities that are overran by violence, riots, turmoil, um, kids killing kids. I mean, it's it's a it's utter insanity in the news. All you have to do is turn on the news and you'll see that we've ostracized those who are paid to protect us all because of the color of one's skin. It's greatly ridiculous. It's a massive mess that we found ourselves in as a society because we have found that one subjective worldview is more important than somebody else's and therefore we should take their life and and if it has to do anything with the color of one's skin then that creates bigger problems so we have the red horse carrying out bloodshed uh he represents the toll of violence across the world whether on a small local scale or on the global scale the next horse we have is the black horse this rider of this horse will bring famine upon the earth he will have scales in hand uh, Ezekiel had warned that the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem's food supply and that Israel and the Israelites would eat bread by weight and with anxiety and drink water by measure and in dismay, as Ezekiel 4, 16 states. Now, uh, then we have here, verse 6, the, the weight, if you would, the wheat for denarius and barley. Uh, the cost given here uh, for grain is quite high since the denarius is represented in a full day's wage. 
do not harm the oil and the wine. The prices of these commodities are comparatively less affected by famine. This is the this at first seems strange since wine and olive oil are typically more valuable than grain. Yet this depiction makes sense if one considers that wine and oil are produced throughout most of the Greco-Roman world, including here in Asia Minor where John writes, while vast areas of the empire were uh, dependent upon imported grain. And so the black horse brings famine and we could uh, greatly look at this and how it affects today's world, right? Um, I'm going to read here a little bit of notes here. These words depict economic collapse and so that people could barely afford the necessities of life. And interestingly enough, we see a lot of that happening, not only throughout history, but very specifically in the last handful of years in, in the Western world and a lot of South American countries who have moved to a socialistic economy, they've collapsed because they can't sustain themselves. And that's what they're trying to push here in the U.S. is this socialist regime. Now, the providence in Asia was self-sufficient in olive oil and wine, but it had to import its grain from Egypt and from other sources. And so we get this understanding here that oil, olive oil in particular, and wine were readily available. You can get it everywhere. And so and we're going to kind of, it kind of is not, again, a, you can't use this as a word for word um, analogy, but I think it kind of gives good insight into when the economy collapses or when a economy collapses, whether it's a country being overthrown or whatever, you know, it, it's reached a new tipping point with said new style of, you know, government rules such as um, uh, socialism, you will see that the most bare necessities, bread, for instance, is through the roof, would cost you more than a day's wage. Uh, you'd have to wait in line. You will have to um, spend countless hours just to get yourself a loaf of bread to eat. But you'll be able to go and get, you know, um, wine, olive oil for, you know, dirt cheap. Now, your particular country may not necessarily you know make its own olive oil or wine you you, know, you may have a different commodity or something that you uh, are self-sufficient in but you'll have this uh kind of comparison if you would you'll have something that's going to be astronomically high in reflection to the uh into the cause of the the world economy or your local economy and then because you have to rely on other countries to bring that to you. And then you'll have the, uh, you know, your local production really unaffected unless for, you know, unless uh, war comes and ravages you and destroys you essentially. So again, interesting little thought process. I don't necessarily think this can be pointed towards one particular event, but I think it's the ongoing ebbs and flows of history and the rises and fallings of governments around the world. And so we will see that this particular horse has been unleashed. If you could debate that, 
um, because we've watched countries struggle with famine and it still happens today. So now we get to the last horse, the pale horse. This fourth rider personifies death. Hades follows since the latter is the abode of the dead. They were given authority. God not only knows about this scourge beforehand, but indeed allows it. Although some may judge this as an out of character for a gracious God, Christians nevertheless believe that the Lord has reasons for allowing tragedies to affect the world. So, again, uh, we can say this is happening on a global scale. These end-time calamities are happening to people all over the world. Um, The text does tell us that it will affect a third of the earth, um, and they will cover the globe. And so while these moments may be, you know, local they happen all over the globe. And so a third of the world's population are affected by these, whether it's famine, death, you know, pestilence, things like that. Um, And so we get this picture painted here that these four horsemen have been unleashed and they are quickly destroying, um, you know, the, the Christians, not only that, but the world unbelievers as well. And so it's, it's hard to really try to put this into a particular box and say that these four horsemen will be unleashed at a later time, or these four horsemen will only be unleashed during the seven years of tribulation. Now, like I said, if you read the left behind books, they take it at a very uh, high level dispensationalist view. And so they would incorporate that. Once a rapture happens, then the first seal would be broken, and then each of these horsemen would then go out and take so many people through their particular objective. And then after the fourth horseman has been unleashed, a total of the third world's population would be eradicated. That's the most dispensationalist view possible. And we don't really see any particular text that would allude to this being the case. And again, if we were to say that, uh, you know, in in kind of the understanding that we just covered in these four horsemen, then we could greatly understand that these have been going on throughout time. These These wars and these conquerings and these famines and, you know, death itself has been happening since the fall of the garden so again each of these horsemen we could spend a number of time but we're well past the hour mark and these shows have been quite long and i want to get us through these last couple of verses here so we're gonna look at the fifth seal uh here verse nine when he opened the fifth seal i saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of god and for their witness they had borne they cried out with a loud voice O sovereign god or O sovereign lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete 
who were to be killed as they themselves have been killed. So this next seal is kind of interesting here. So we see this altar, the place of sacrifice throughout the Old Testament. Uh, there's a lot of rich symbolism here. The martyrs are those who offer their very selves in sacrifice to the Lord. So these those who have been slain uh, is best taken um, as a martyrs of all ages. Again, if we're going to say that the four horsemen are not related to a specific instance, then this particular seal fits well because we can say that all we're, we're talking about martyrs from all ages. They have been under this altar and they're crying out here to, to the Lord saying, how long will you judge before you judge and avenge our blood? How long Lord? And so we can say that this isn't a very, this isn't related to a particular time frame. And by the time this prophecy was written in the first century, relatively few Christians had actually been martyred in comparison to the carnage that is to come during regional and imperial persecutions. And so as John is writing this, um, and this is, this is where we get into some interesting conversation because as John's writing this, there'd only probably been a handful, only the, you know, there's no real number to staple to it, but only a handful of Christians had been, um, you know, martyred by this time. Now we could go on to say that these, as John, as this seals broken, that this would be all of the martyrs throughout time, whether they had been born or not born. That could be a view, but very hard to support that with scripture. Um, because it just simply says here, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And for their witness, they had borne. Again, we don't know time framing. We don't understand. You know, we don't know who uh, in time that this happens. Again, John is outside of time in this particular event. And so we can only take it to what the text says. So these souls cry out to God, just as the blood of Abel, the prototypical innocent sufferer, not just a privileged position within heavenly temple keeps the martyrs from fervently seeking retribution. Uh, the angel pray, the angel in heaven prays for us as Christ himself, as Paul writes in Romans eight. So do the saints on earth and perhaps also in heaven as revelation six, nine and through 10 here does. It does not follow though that we should invoke or adore the angels and the saints. Here's what Luther writes on this verse. We must look as he does upon the total number of martyrs, which is not yet complete, but is daily in the process of being completed until we have all been brought together. Meanwhile, we must comfort ourselves, uh, must comfort others that we have this king seated as our Lord who has already subdued many of his enemies under his feet and continues to overthrow one after another. Ultimately, he will destroy them all at once. And though he die, and uh, although we die oppressed and trampled by them, as it appears, we have the comfort that he will not forget us, but fetch us when his time comes and seat us above so that they must forever lie under our feet. So Luther really takes a point of position when basically he says that as John's writing this, the number continues. And that's what the text tells us right here in uh, verse 11. 
here at the last pat last little bit here it says until the number of their fellow servants or uh, fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been killed and so this seal is simply just these saints crying out to God to the sovereign Lord how long are you going to wait to avenge us and so we can get into you know various lines here and trying to argue whether that you know again is a particular instance in the in the distant future but I don't think we can really say I think this number as John's writing it is constantly being added to and you can even look back and say that those individuals are still being added because we have had you know since John wrote this letter this book we still have you know again countless individuals who have been martyred for their faith Uh, so in 611 here they're each given a white robe this robe mentioned back in 3 4 is more closely associated with the Christian righteousness bestowed through baptism. Here it seems that it represents eternal life. And so, again, for those who take a very pointed position on baptism, that, you know, what you receive in baptism is the promise of God, the seal of God over you. Um, many will try to write that off and saying that that's not possible, but, you know. I guess we'll just throw away scripture and not argue that, but uh, (laughs) I have a very particular view on baptism, which I'm hoping, I haven't really shed much light on it, but I'm hoping we'll do a series this summer, uh, kind of a segregated series, uh, a separated one. It will walk us through some of my more particular views on theology. And so that way you'll kind of get a bit more, in-depth view of what I stand for and what I support. So stay tuned for that. I'm working on it right now. So we have this, you know, fifth seal, uh, which is kind of interesting. Like I said, it it stands out against the, um, from the prior four. So the prior four is, you know, all of these horsemen being unleashed. But then if you really think about it, it kind of fits in well because, these horsemen that were unleashed to go into the world to conquer, to be conquered, to uh, kill and enslave and drive famine into the populations. I think this fits well because now we've got this um, this next seal here to be broken with all of these martyrs. And so it's fits well kind of within the time scale, you know, the timeline of the church where as Christianity kind of expanded. We have churches being persecuted, and we read through those letters that they were being actively persecuted. Um, and now we have these individuals who have been slain crying out to the Lord, asking how much longer. So we will get to the sixth and seventh seal. And we will work ourselves all the way through the seventh chapter in uh, Revelation next week. And then uh, we'll obviously continue on. So we're going to finish these last few verses in chapter six and then move on until 
seven. And again, this is we're going to get into some more interesting text here as we have in chapter seven, the 144,000 of Israel sealed. And so we're going to probably look back a little bit into what Paul writes in the book of Romans as we cover that topic. So as we continue pressing these hour mark shows here, these hour long ones, um, some of this topic, like I said, I want to spend some time digging into and some of it, I think it, we can kind of lay out a simple explanation and just kind of talk about it, move through it. So, but this is a tough topic, tough material. So again, don't just take my word for it. Go and do additional reading, do additional research if you're interested and just keep learning. That's all we can do. So ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude today's show. Again, like I said, we can we can keep going for forever, it feels like. But uh, for your sanity and mine, we're going to wrap her up and we will see you all next week. God bless. Thanks for joining. We'll see you later. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.